Hello, this is Dr. Pauline Herbst, and you are listening to Pandemics Reflected, a podcast about the human research behind COVID-19 and how the lives, research, and scholarship of the human researchers involved intersected with and was reoriented by the ongoing pandemic. Today, I'm talking to Professor Lisa Samuels, author, poet, multimodal artist, and professor of English at the University of Auckland. Lisa, welcome. Thank you, Pauline. It's really good to be here and to continue talking with you. Talking to Professor Lisa Samuels is like dancing with language. In this podcast, we delve into a new collection of poetry, Breach, written as a visionary text over a five-day period in lockdown. We talk about Lisa's process and discuss how pandemic thresholds affect multimodal art forms. But first, a reading from the opening pages of Breach. So I'll just say before I read uh, that Li Wenliang is the uh, doctor in China who first called attention uh, to, was suppressed for calling attention to the rise of the COVID pandemic and then subsequently died of the virus um, himself, sadly. Naming the window Penny Filter stirs a sight oblique. The line, Li Wenliang, or next, garden toil. I awoke, tilted after communiques, guards, the grocery aisles, aqualongs on speakers. Who could tell Li Wenliang anything? Sheer window treatment, passing through room to savage room, treatise on nice felt coasters, shaking the ice cup, linear equilibrates, one coastline hankering for shore. Ready to the lips, dictates, wait, Postures, waving at windows, water, splish, here, tankards, writ, every which day, there too, dreamt, integument circles, those sweet green carve caves, through whom treats of suffering are over there, sit, stead, were it for the plug fare, it'll be in arrears, the spots of time turned into busy modes, the conversation occurs amidst some other Li Wenliang, then here the terriers nab, incessant, quiet, perky jointers, puck-a-puck, puck-a-puck. The trucks are on the road and in front of... Fantastic. So, Lisa, it's interesting. We are both members of the Pandemics Hub, the Pandemics Research Hub, uh, here at the University of Auckland, and we met on a writing retreat. We did. We met, uh, I think, in July of tw- of last year, 2021. That's, That's right. right. So it was kind of in between lockdowns and um, various things, and you were there working on just some loose writing? Um, I tend to work on multiple projects at once um, and to respond intuitively mm, within the situation at hand. Um, In fact, I found some interesting material on perception in the theologically oriented library of our retreat center. And Mm. also we were at a time when we were able to meet in person. Um, There was um, no active COVID in the community. And so we were able to take walks on the beach and have conversations in groups it was great. That's great. Do you want to tell us more about you as a creative, as an artist, as a scholar? Um, sure. Uh, so I'm mm, really interested in um, a bunch of different things. I got a normative academic PhD 
and turned into a kind of poet critic by virtue of publishing book after book um, in the creative zone of things. Um, I'm working on essays that you could put under the category of creative theory and um, critical bodies, people responding to what it means to um, produce different kinds of writing and sign systems in artistic space. I'm really interested in imaginative knowing and imaginative unknowing. So one of my catchphrases is imagining what we don't know. Um, I'm really devoted to relational um, otherness, relational alterity, the intactness of the otherness of the other um, as you build relationships. And as all that might indicate, I'm apparently really devoted to the ethics of bodies and um, also um, expanded representation. That is to say that every form of sign making in a cultural space is a valid way of knowing and can be turned into an interesting imaginative way of unknowing as well. A lot of that, you can see how that would link directly into the pandemic around bodies, around forms of knowing, around how people understand and know this thing. But in many ways, people might be thinking, well, what do multimodal art forms have to do with pandemics? What do, you know, what does experimental poetry and writing and, and theoretical experiments have to do with pandemics? Yeah, um, well, everyone is experiencing the pandemic, right? It's something that goes um, through the earth, through the planet, and um, is vocally experienced and thoughtfully experienced, mindfully experienced as we understand it in our human animal bodies. And so I would say that everything um, that the pandemic has been in relation with has been in also in relation with my work. Um, and as with other thinking workers and imagining workers and art workers, you don't always necessarily know thematically the evidence um, of the cultural circumstances, the medical circumstances, the somatic circumstances um, of the maker. Now, in my case, I would actually say that the evidences have been quite overt, not only in um, essays that I've written in relation to the pandemic, um, not only in relation to Breach, which is the um, poetry book that I wrote under the pressure of our first pandemic lockdown in Aotearoa in New Zealand, but also in my own thinking relation and my active relation with thresholds, threshold spaces. And I was thinking about this um, on the bus this morning because I knew I was going to be talking to you this afternoon after teaching for three hours, and so I've been thinking about a lot of different things today. But the question of the threshold is both um, a kind of entirely material question having to do with the threshold of a, a discourse space, like an essay or a book, having to do with the threshold of buildings, having to do with the thresholds of our bodies, having to do with the thresholds of our mouths and eyes and our hands touching things. And again, as I say, the lintels and doorways of buildings. Um, and threshold spaces are also entirely conceptual. All of those spaces that I just mentioned, in addition to being literal, are also conceptual. And in the discursive and conceptual sense, then, I was thinking about thresholds because I was thinking about how it has changed my relation to entering an idea, exiting an idea, being impinged upon by, by an idea, written through, feeling an idea. Also, the pressure that I feel in approaching 
or coming away from the relationality of whatever whatever it is I'm relating to. Now, how does this matter? Because it matters in the classroom, both in the Zoom space of teaching, online space of teaching, and also today I just taught in person um, a large undergraduate class uh, for the first time since last August. For those future listeners dropping in on this auditory time capsule from the in-between limbo land of cultural pandemic shift, that's nine months since students and professors interacted in person on this New Zealand campus. So you can see how the notion of material, discursive and conceptual threshold spaces, from buildings to masks and breath, to bodies to ideas, would be top of mind. And so entering that threshold space um, in a pedagogical sense, um, all of these things are inflected by and infected by the pandemic. And, and that, you know, what is the threshold of our talking? What is the threshold, the, the really interesting confabulation of the literal and the conceptual in the droplets that literally go between us and, and our notion of what does it mean for me to be influenced and, and altered and to be in relation um, in that literal and conceptual space. So I think it's really interesting. Um, and th- those. And I was also thinking about it in terms of the uh, contrast that's sometimes brought up between forces and states, states being notionally more stable, more structured, and forces being um, highly energized or change agents, and the way in which the pandemic becomes um, turns everything into a force field. Everything is change agent. And the displacement of, you know, the distance of yourself from the threshold of any made thing or any, you know, arriving thing. So I was just thinking about that. Um, you know, so for me, as a, a more briefly, in answer to your question, um, everything that I've made, e- including the extensions of my interest in liquid theory and the liquid body um, and um, the physical criticism work that I do, um, has been impinged upon and influenced by and very feelingly um, experienced in my creations, whether in expository prose discourse or in visual art that I've made um, or in the creative writing that I've done since the pandemic started. I found that incredibly interesting. I've got a background in medical anthropology, as you know, and there are similar questions, but it's it's phrased differently. So around borderlands um, and around friction and spaces in between and how those spaces in between are very generative. And I love how you have these demarcations of disciplines within universities, within scholarship, but how a lot of the same big questions are being tackled um, and being worked out by, by different forms of thinking. Two of Lisa's books that sprang to mind as she was talking are Tender Girl and The Long White Cloud of Unknowing. And we'll put more detail about these in the show notes. In the pre-surrealist Comte de l'Autremont's Songs of Moldora, the hero copulates with the female shark in the frenzied sea of a shipwreck. This French poetic novel was rediscovered by the surrealists in 1930, and Salvador Dali was invited to illustrate the text. Lisa has gone a step further in Tender Girl, imagining girl as the daughter of the shark and man from the 1868 text, described as a visceral little mermaid who comes out from ocean and crosses the land of the father, finding speech, sex, law, violence, and art. 
My first experience with Lisa's work, I found it an enthralling, unsettling, and synesthetic reading experience. The second is The Long White Cloud of Unknowing, first published at the end of 2019, just before the SARS-CoV-2 virus spread. Lisa, as you were talking, I was thinking about this book almost as a precursor to the experience of lockdown and breach. It's about a woman with a suitcase of meat, waiting in a room for one day and night. Inside the room, language surrounds her. As heresy and authority intensify, she readies to open the door. Lisa, could you read us the commentary, please? So I'm reading, this is actually from Aaron Moray, who's a Canadian poet, mm-hmm. who wrote this about the long white cloud of unknowing. Mm-hmm. The book presents vocalized listening across languages and via bodies. We too are a listening body, a body in absorption and expulsion, attentive in the thinking, pause, and query of a day in a woman's life. Spanish, French, Māori, Latin, all course through the mind of the one thinking in English, whose rich linguistic inner life we inhabit and move in, as if it were a spacesuit we don to float in atmospheres otherwise inaccessible to us. In this language, this unknowing cloud full of knowledges, relations, worldly resonances, we are held. So that was a very evocative description of the book, The Long White Cloud of Unknowing. And I wanted, as a a continuation of our discussion, to talk to you about how that had links or tendrils perhaps into breach if it did or didn't, or how your your thinking um, perhaps changed or opened as a result of COVID-19. My form certainly changed in breach, very different from The Long White Cloud of Unknowing, which is uh, they're the same in the sense that each one is a book-length work, a continual book-length work. Um, the Long White Cloud of Unknowing formed over a very long period of time and um, is, mm, among other things, uh, an investigation of heretical ontology and epistemology, right? The kind of um, uh, what is heresy in cultural thinking scapes. Ontology is the nature of being, becoming existence or reality. And epistemology is what we can know and how we can know it. Heresy and heretical thoughts are those that differ from what is generally accepted. Lisa now goes on to touch on a broader philosophical tension between being a contemplative, traditionally described as turning inwards and focusing on thought, prayer and reading, and an active, turning towards the world and people. Also, and perhaps connectedly with breach, or as a way of segueing, taking up your question, it's also partly involved with the question of being an active and being a contemplative, which is a contrast that has sometimes been considered in thought communities like among monks and nuns, among those kinds of believing people. So the tension between being an active and being a contemplative certainly came up in the pandemic lockdowns because one was forced to into the contemplative position, whether naturally active or not. You had to contemplate. You had to be in that contemplative position. And so as a complete contrast with the long white cloud of unknowing, which, as I say, took a number of years to put together, Breach was, although I did edit it to some extent afterwards, was composed in a visionary 
experience that went on for five days. So it was composed very rapidly. And uh, in April of 2020, so the lockdown started something like March 26 or something like that. So very intensely written in the, the feeling of being locked down. And also the question of volition. What is our will in our activity when you are in a, a situation in which the, the nation state has a value of care for others in a medical way? then you respond to the imperative to go into lockdown. And I did in one way or another. Everybody did, whether you know, happily or not. So having your volition questioned and held away from you was like having a kind of layer of your body pulled away and floating out into something that became a civic space that was relational, the not you. At the same time, your retained... Um, isolated selfhood um, potentially could, as with me with Breach, become uh, intensely aware of mm, not only paradoxically the breach between your entity and, and then the border and then some other entity, but actually also the conduits and connectedness. So it may seem paradoxical, but having things stripped away Like, I don't know, having your myelin sheaths stripped away mm -hmm. makes you even more full of nerves. <laughs> you become very aware of your nerve relation. Um, so uh, it's interesting that you bring a, a comparison between the two books. I hadn't really thought about that, but it's quite curious because the situation of The Long White Cloud of Unknowing is only one day, in morning and afternoon and evening and night. Um, and the situation of breach has no such temporal boundary, even though it was certainly composed in such a, a temporal foreclosure, you know, that kind of temporal boundary. So, yeah, there's a lot of connections. That's great. I have about six questions um, that you've stimulated. So first, when we were chatting briefly about this, you were saying that breach develops and then became form And the rollover of Delta followed by the rollover of o Omicron or Omicron, depending how people um, decide to pronounce it. And I wanted to talk to you about time um, in terms of things like publications, in terms of the, there being these strict timelines that people think that they ascribe to in the before times. There would be something written or something created. You'd kind of plan a date for a launch that would happen would be published at a certain time and things can be planned in some sort of orderly progression. So I wanted to have a chat to you around temporality around that and also around how COVID-19, as you said, has created openings, as in perhaps we are more aware now that those things were never in the first place. In existence or real. Yeah, yes. right. Yes, yes. People reify them by carrying them out. You know, yes. they, they act as though they're real things that exist already, always already in cultural space. Yeah, sure. As I mentioned earlier, I tend to carry on many projects simultaneously. So, mm -hmm. in fact, there's a, a whole other poetry manuscript that I was writing, not at the same moment that I wrote Breach, but in the same temporality that I've now finished, but again over a, a longer period of time called Livestream. So, for me... The, the intuitive, mm, that's not really the word I want to use except maybe in a medieval sense, the sense of what it means for something to appear in 
public space outside of one's workshop, to put it that way, as though we all, you know, we all have some form of workshop, whether it's on a laptop or a literal room, a studio room and that kind of thing. When things appear publicly, whether as a kind of performance or not, or as an instantiated object like a book, happens in a kind of, for me already, in quite a staggered, non-aligned way. And partly just because I do a lot of different projects, as I say, simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So I may not be the best case example, um, someone going from an obedient, reified through line of the creation of of a, a research output, simply because that's not usually the way I work. But is it ever, though? That's a, an interesting question, because I do think of examples in which people do function in that way. It's fair to give people like that space, that they really respond to the institutional circumstances of desire for research outputs and the sense of a desire to achieve according to institutional parameters. You, you know, I can't make that an otherness that is outside acceptability. I, I don't feel that way. I, I only hope in those cases, and this of course is a revealing comment, but I only hope that, those, that in those cases people are feeling free. Yep. So this is partly about volition and choice. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll turn your question in this direction about volition and choice. One of the things that I have, um, I can say, maybe liked about the pandemic is that issues of ableism and other ableism um, to use those words advisedly, ethically, warming, warmly, and, and caringly, um, have come out into institutional conversation in ways that I think have been really salutary, the salutary that have been really good for people's health and well-being, the ability to say things about what you're able to do or that you need to be able to do in a different way. So I think that these are terms and energies and forces in dispute. I cannot be confident that the situation of opening to otherness is now simply on a freer trajectory and will remain that way. However, I think that there is traction, there are precursors, there are energies of openness that I hope that people can take advantage of, feel, if they want to, in making their work. So I think basically that direction of multiple abilities to thrive is, again, probably paradoxically, given the pandemic, is at least more open, more on the playground of possible institutional consciousness. Thinking a little more on that temporality and bringing it back to to an almost religious overtone, and I'm using the term loosely, in breach. Lisa Robert Foley in the, um, the little intro in the beginning uh, refers to this as a meditation on the material of contagion. So she describes this as a meditation. And at various aspects, you talked earlier about this idea of, of heretical thinking. Would yep. you be able to read... And extract... 51 to 52? Yep, that would be fantastic. Great, I can do that. Okay. So this is from the beginning of section four of Breach. We're Catholic now, small c, purred, dense with staves. Sudden onset, we're watch, our fingers glued, each falling nurse, practitioner, doctor, so-and-so, splits names. Inside us, 
body aura. One, two, four. Match. Freeze. Your sud friend finds a fizz, terps it openly, flip top wheat can extend out the bronchioles. They non-align. Their new luffs co-detruit. Inside the tixt we find an other, and she's temper, temper, endive, bitter, intibus, an earl in an open part, uncurled, welcome, in a like marsupial. Down there we heard you, ear to ear, composite, lessening. That was just wonderful. Thank you. There are two aspects, as I said, that I really wanted to pick on there. This idea of we're Catholic now, small c. And I wanted you to talk a little bit more about that before we go into the more sensory aspects. I can do that. And, you know, with the wraparound understanding that in a visionary text, the whole notion of intentionality or choice structures, when you're dealing with the relational forces of agentive language, mean that it's not as though I sat down and said, I'm now going to write a treatise on the small-c Catholic term. So small-c Catholic uh, simply means open to a lot of different points of view. That's why it says small-c, not Catholic as in the Catholic Church. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. Um, hmm. One of the things that interests me is how much people think-believe and believe-think how much people's think, thinking structures are inveigled with, wrapped around with, transmitted through, and mentally held in postures of belief. So this has to do with, for example, often when people say they think something, they often mean that they believe it. Or if they accept the thinking that a work might give to them, it includes at least to some extent a posture of belief belief acceptance. And so what is belief? People sometimes talk about leaps of faith. So that actually engages entirely with something you mentioned earlier, which is the gap. Um, how do things transmit um, you know, in, in the sense in which the symbolic energy of language, because language is a symbolic set of structures and forces, is always translational. It's always leaping across, always leaping and leaping and leaping. So there's always going to be some measure of what can be called acceptance or belief or faith structure or embrace or love towards things that people devote themselves to with some volition when they have some kind of range of choice. So then I think it's very interesting to think, given that we're all in the belief structure of the pandemic, we're all joining one way or another, willingly or not, extensively by being sick or not, completely by dying, or or less so by being separated and not wanting to get ill or pass along illnesses, we're all involved in the same cultural moment. And if you think about religion as a cultural set of cultural moments differing across time, then we all enter some kind of zone of similitude. And our differences then can be both leapt over by a sense of shared experience, which is quite shocking to people, I think. And also those differences can come out precisely because we're comparing apples with apples instead of apples with oranges. So we're entering a realm of likeness and similitude 
in which we see our likeness, but we also see our distinction even more vividly. It's wonderful listening to you talk. It's almost like poetry in motion, <laughs> as cliche <laughs> as that sounds. <laughs> the rolling of the language seems to roll into, um, to, into breach and some of the thoughts that I had mm. around it. I wanted you to read another section, which I think links to what we've been talking about now. This is from section three of Breach, page 37. I'll give it a go. Thank you. Whose on-ramp chair now seats you, Saltimbanque? Here's your offertory, peaked, inefficient, no trouble. Judgy screeds pair their temper with thermonucleotides. You wait until the chair is true with you. It's April, a day when sometime in a future dates roll out your tongue. If every life mats equally, then what's on life? Green operants, bright birds, but elements. A voice plan gets very near one's open channels, call out Soybean Republic, Hampton Replicants, such names called once, you're naked at bottom, no one to see, hub on planetary spooning, world flick, eye looms, eating heads, your screens simmer, holy laps on selves, fuckumentary, if only. So we've just passed April, we're 2nd of May today, and thinking back to, you wrote this in, in sort of five days, then you said you edited it later, how does your recollection of that April compare to, say, your recollection of this April? Having read through that, can you see the you in that April versus the you now? Well, there's a supposition in the latter question oh. um, that there is a you there, mm -hmm. um, a you being, in this case, let's suppose, uh, an I. Mm, the agentive forces of language and the relational forces of language. That is to say, every time you use language, it's both your intersection with the possibilities of language and always also the body of potential and actual language that pre-exists and post-exists you and your articulation in that moment. So therefore, what it means to say I is um, an intersection with the possibilities articulated on those pages that I have just read. Um, I certainly feel a couple of things in relation to your question. One is that for me, in my feeling sense, there's no such thing as time. Everything that happens continues to happen. And I'm not talking about the theory of multiverses, the theory of multiple worlds, which is a whole other conversation. We could have that conversation, but that's not so much what I'm talking about here. Um, so there is both a diremption and a continuity with any living human-animal body um, in the things that have happened with that human-animal body in time, in times. So in that sense, necessarily I feel connected with the, with the selfhood that composed in that time and space. Um, in a different sense, when you're making a work um, and, you're, and, it, and it's part of a work that you've been making for a long time, I don't mean the individual work, but a way of making that you've been doing for a long time, 
everything that you are up until that moment causes you to make that work as it is then. So it isn't as though the creation of the work was um, unusual or came newly out of, entirely newly out of other circumstances. There's one other thing to say, I suppose, m probably other things too, but because, and you are a, a multicultural person, and you understand that cultural contingency, as soon as you cross X with Y, you get that gap between, and you get um, juxtaposition. And so the sense, the pervasive sense of contingency that I have as a formed being in the world, bodily, mentally, emotionally, desiringly, artistically, radical contingency is how I feel things to be, both in their particularity and in their conjoined simultaneity with other particularities. So, you know, these, um, <laughs> these things are, are continuities for me. Yeah. I want to come back to that idea of think feeling because that's quite important. But I also know that you have lived in many places. You've taught and worked and, and traveled and lived with your family in different places. And I wanted to ask the uh, Sultan Bank, have I pronounced that correctly? Uh, I think you can pronounce it however you want. However I wish. <laughs> um, so Sultan Bank, is that from the Picasso work? Is that a word that you've generally picked up with your immersion in the different possibilities of language and the different possibility of places? I think it's um, much more the second and the third, okay. the latter two of mm -hmm. your articulations. That is to say, so when I write, I don't choose the words. I am in relation to the possibility of articulation that co-occurs with me. Mm -hmm. Language writes itself through me because of my relational... Mm, ontology with language as a language user. Um, and so it very often surprises me when words show up, what it turns out that they mean when I look afterwards. Yeah. I don't know that I know them. Oh. And so uh, saltimbanque is acrobat in French. There are many other words in this book that I have to look up afterwards and just say, oh, what's that? So clearly what's happening is that my, my prior absorptions are transmitting through at those moments of visionary, imaginal writing. That seems like a large claim, but I am happy to make it because I think it happens with everyone. When we work, for example, with students, getting them to think about what it means to produce a string of articulations and what their relation is to, you know, like if you think about what you're doing when you start to articulate something, you feel these urges. Your body kind of pushes forward. You feel a little bit maybe warmer or energized. But you're not actually selecting the articles and adjectives and nouns that you're going to articulate. You just push. And because you are using that relational language, which knows how to speak itself with all of your contextual and prior occurrences, Language will speak. And so that's, that's how that word came out. And would you say that that goes for editing as well? Editing would be one of those moments when I look up words and say, oh, you know, what's that? And I don't tend to cut out words at those kinds of moments. So when I teach creative making, I talk about uh, how crucial it is to make sure that you don't judge what you're doing at the moment that you're doing it. The creation of material, creation precedes evaluation, creation precedes um, critical second looking. So editing is now 
how is this work speaking um, in its made self? And um, what can, you know, what, are there moments of wheel spinning? Are there moments, um, are there layout possibilities, line-breaking possibilities that will give um, opportunities to words to be solo for a moment and a little bit noisier um, by putting them on a line by themselves, for example? Um, so editing is entirely different. The look is very different. It's interesting you say that because something I've been quite um, getting increasingly obsessed with through this these pandemic ongoing openings are these ideas of speculative thought processes and of being as becoming, sort of drawing on um, Stengers there. But the idea that the pandemic made all of us think about world making as we went we were becoming aware of the constructedness of certain forms um, and this is obviously from a, a sort of sociocultural perspective that I'm thinking this through so it's interesting um, how you you frame a lot of those similar uh, sort of questions but that's been an, an ongoing force in your work for you know decades now mm. and um, and I think for many people the experience of the pandemic force them to think, feel, force them to have this daily engagement um, of sensory think, feeling through what will the next minute bring, what will the next second bring, mm. which I think Breach um, really speaks to. Um, a quick question about the structure, because this is one form, one, one long piece of work, mm. so it's not meant to be read differently. Um, what do the, uh, the breaks of the structures mean, the numbering from one to five? The days... Is that the, the days? five days? Oh, day one to five. Mm. Let's see. And I actually, I had the um, design person who worked with me. I suggested to her, her that she put the one, two, three, four, five marching across the top of the page, oh, um, like that, yes. to indicate. But it doesn't have to be days. Um, but that's the that's the notion. Mm. Okay. It's also that um, that uh, discrete series um, are interesting to consider sometimes in order to achieve um, the effects of ongoingness, it's good to insert interruptions. And again, sort of paradoxically, perhaps people can feel the ongoingness precisely because they have moments of reattention, reorientation. I love that. And I like that you've almost given me the crib notes to the numbering at the top, because now that you've said that, I can see it. And I feel that that's something I would have discovered many years after rereading this work and, and become very excited about that. But I've almost got the, the sort of chocolate egg kinder surprise way in advance. Mm. Um, now, for anyone who's listening who hasn't seen the book, it is exquisite in form. It's a very simple, white, matte textured cover with the title Breach in Black. And it has something quite exciting in terms of the wraparound. And Lisa, you were telling me a little bit about this image. Do you want to talk? Ah, yeah, the cover image. Mm. Yeah, so I took this photo and I can tell you, possibly it still exists, I took a photo of a picnic tabletop in Western Springs. I was, I went to, this would have been after, it would have been 2020 after the lockdown lifted because I went to see a production in that area and we were waiting at a picnic table and I saw this set of nails making a wound in the table. And they looked, they reminded me, made me think of, well, actually, I think I just took the photograph. But then I thought about COVID clusters as they're presented in media. 
as these kind of you know, pretty active, scaly-looking, scary round things that are going to enter. And so this seemed both to be a kind of, uh, it's a breach, it's a breach of the tabletop with nails, but also you could see it as a meeting or the creation of an otherness of art, an entirely unnecessary creation of the otherness of art in the instrumentation of the picnic table made to be eaten upon. So that's why I selected the image for the wraparound part of the cover, though I put the more plain kind of streaks of breech, very worn wood on the front, because partly because of the question of closeness and farawayness seems to me to be performed in the, the geophysicality of that image, as though you could be very far away on a plane, an airplane, or you could be very close touching the rivulets on this old picnic table. Coming to the end, mm. titles. There are many thoughts around titles, that that's really putting a stamp on something that the title shapes it after and sometimes is only revealed in that, that shaving away, that editing phase. And then other times titles just come and the work develops from that almost like roots from a, a central rhizome. How did Breach come about? As a title. As a title. Yeah, it was actually when I was writing it, I called it hull, which is the last word. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about hull in terms of ships and the breach in the hull of a ship like the Earth ship, the ship of Earth that we are floating around on. So it's published by the University of East Anglia poetry imprint called Boiler House Press. And partly because it's getting published in the UK, I didn't want it to be confused with Hull the City. Ah, so it was a very simple decision to move away from the title Hull, which I still like, uh, to a title that spoke to Hull by being a Hull breach. And breach is interesting because somehow to me it has connection in it, not only breakage. And I think that can be as simple as having the word reach inside it. It can be as, I suppose, indicative as having the word each inside it. But it also, I think, probably has brack as in like branches and arms and reaching inside it. So there's a lot of um, connectivity in it for me as well. That's fantastic. Um, you mentioned in that around the the earth is a ship. And when we caught up for coffee, um, we were chatting about this podcast that was launching. And I can credit Lisa with um, some of the thinking around that for our promo for this, um, around the idea of That was the, fun. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, when I was reading through uh, the poetry as well, um, I was wondering if you could read us from page 65 to the end of 66, because there as well you, you talk about that idea of, of the globe as a round thing. I might actually start on the top of page 66. Sure. Just for fun. The globe's a round thing with fuzzy coordinates proliferating. It's a mirror. Look, look, the ambulatory memes crawl on your skin. Each story draws the attributes of lent around the next box. Your attempts, you open two eyes, spoon bowls inside your head mouth. Every hole turns page blank tributes hone on pull the script the blow through hull whose fenoscope 
arrears on flags, a code does all the buildings raw, tweaked, pharmacy, flut, sidewalk, flesh in a trance, the shred fabric closed, the hungry methadon child all pre-transfigured, numb in the arms, chalk-wheeled head harder, outlines. The globes around thing with fuzzy coordinates, is that linking to this idea of the, the earth ship? I suppose it's also, uh, you know, the fuzzy coordinates of the round representations of the COVID virus as though it's a little globe that's going to enter us, you know. Um, uh, Yeah, Um, it's interesting, though. There's still always this kind of extreme closeness and extreme far awayness, extreme literalness, extreme symbolism. um, And the if you have coordinates and they're fuzzy, then are they? can they really be said to be coordinates? Yes, and they're fuzzy. So the kind of both and of the, you know, the tactility and the conceptuality coexisting in that earthship that we're floating around on. But I do often imagine elementals and, and the earth um, as a way actually of um, inciting peace of mind. I found it interesting how the Lent and, and those medieval um, almost iconographies or figures come up through this, but I'm also aware that that is very possibly my interpretation and my assumptions. I think actually it's interesting to think about um, polyvalence uh, or, or polysemy, right? The multiple meaning of words, the both and. Mm. Um, and so it's not about being ambiguous, it's about being both and. Mm. So Lent also has um, loan, loanership in it, loaning, mm. um, and also has leaning in it. Um, the, the, the flexibility of the lexemes is something that they choose for themselves, um, one might say, in the dynamics of language. And so those things that you see are there, um, and then those other things are also there. And what is your next work? Will you be publishing the poetry that you talked about? Ah, the live stream book. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I have hopes that it will appear. Oh. Actually, my next work is um, a translation of Tender Girl into Serbian oh. um, called Mekana Devojka coming out with Partizanska Press um, in about a month. Wonderful. And I believe Tender Girl is also audio? Yes. Yes. The uh, full audio recording of Tender Girl was made by Tim Page and is up free online at uh, Pen Sound. Fantastic. I'd love to listen to Tender Girl in Serbian. I think it must just be an auditory experience. Will Breach be recorded as an audio book at all? Well, this today was the first time that I performed from the Breach book because um, it's just been published for a few months and there's been no occasion to have a, a launch or anything like that. So um, will I do a full audio of Breach? It could happen. But in the meantime, it was really nice to have a chance to read it aloud and I really appreciate all the warm things that you said about it, Pauline. It seems fitting to close with a reading from the end of Breach, Page 70, day 5. Stay listening to the end if you want to know what Lisa thinks about the term experimental poetry. Even underneath your skin face, doctor, nurse, we salute you without being anywhere near the border. The grief, lockdown, and groceries are not the same, yet salt applies to your face anything, foraging, that room in the compound Complex sentence, mar bait, roll around, outside periwinkle, asinine, sky thoughts. 
Lawn attributes atop tall buildings skip heart like the green moniker strives. Thump, thump. The earth bumps preggers with gif. Piling near that. Top. But ho, hold, keep the rooftop buggers. Cossie the fold, fair green purpose names arriving. The farm door, cossack, vents, throatmen, openers, settle in yawns. The lungs crack, anonyms, without thought, apart. Feral wheels trip up dog's mercury, distal brew lands spot on in soluble leaks into comestibles, hats, pathways, up and then scurry home, all the blues are after yous, polite, see? Holding for your friendships, sailing your numbs away. Just as hauntology declares its verisimilitude, a tin can beats the officer, well, a proxy soldat kind of blank yawn civic order, soldering on, alarmly close. Youth pipes, auction call. If all the gunk came out at once, there's nothing at last arrived. Attempting co-relation atmosphere, the genitalia gleam on earth. The organs want their own mouths, inverted comas, exhumate. Getting ready, forge, plonk, spat along a floor, outlet of manumissions, hunker state. Omit all anthromality, throw us a map, a rope, a heavy can, do. My friend writes wit and care words, I discover electric ink can think, neither waste nor gather, only emergence exenting from outside in, to one another case, Hull. Thank you. That's marvellous. So, to close off, before I say goodbye to you, if you were to say to someone who had to ask, so what is experimental poetry, what would you say? I, I might suggest that it's a redundant term, that um, poetry is experiments with language. I love it. And with that, um, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast as thank our you. very first guest. It has been absolutely wonderful, as always, talking to you. And it's really nice to talk with you. And I'm really glad that you're doing this work. Oh. I think it's a good work. You've been listening to Pandemics Reflected, a show about arts-related research and discoveries during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. Join me next week in conversation with data ethicist Dr. Andrew Chen about how he went from computer systems engineer to working on questions around data privacy and the COVID tracing app. Opportunities and danger go hand in hand with an elevated public profile. Make sure to subscribe from your favorite platform for weekly updates. <laughs>